to the end of our first season of Sovereign Debt Podcasts. Our guests are among our most favorite. Not that we don't live the, love the guests at the beginning, but Jeremy Zettelmeyer is truly a giant of the field of sovereign debt. When I started out doing research on sovereign debt, I imagined Jeremy to be this uh, 75-year-old professor who just was uh, issuing these wise statements about how to solve the world's problems every time there was a crisis. And then to my shock, <clears throat> when I first met him, I think it was in the context of the Greek restructuring, he turned out to look like a 35-year-old or maybe 25-year-old. And it just was that, you know, he had started doing path-breaking work when he was 12 years old. So uh, we have since, uh, Mark, Jeremy, and I have since then uh, become fast friends. Despite being an economist, Jeremy is a truly nice person. He always finds a way to see the good in people. And that certainly was not my experience in graduate school in economics. But today we're going to ask Jeremy about the current state of the sovereign debt world. But I wanted to express just how happy I am that he's here and how honored we are given that he's extremely busy trying to solve the problems of the world that have resulted from the coronavirus, particularly in the debt front. So our first question, given that this podcast is primarily aimed at helping our students, although it certainly educates us, uh, is about the role of the IMF in solving large-scale sovereign debt crises, but not just the IMF, but also the other major institutions around the world, many, many of which Jeremy has worked at or interacted with over time. My sense is most of our students, when they come into a class like the one that Mark and I teach on international debt finance, they really don't know what these institutions do and uh, tend to think that things like the Paris Club are just, you know, a, a very fun um, club in Paris. And, uh, that is not at all the case, I think Jeremy will tell us. It is not at all fun. Jeremy? Thank, thank you so much. So um, I now know why you didn't invite me for the first three months. You wanted to keep the really nice people for the uh, for the end, but of course, um, what I really do know is that you, you're just trying to indirectly apologize for dissing our latest IMF paper in an earlier podcast. But oh no, I was being apologize. nice, Jeremy. That that was the kind and gentle version of what I thought of that paper. No, no, no. If I reply to that, this whole podcast will go off track. So, so we, we're going to go back to your to your question. So, so basically. Um, I, I guess the point to start with is that in this crisis, as you know, debt issues have come to the forefront as a result of the of the pandemic and also of rising debt levels in many developing countries pre-pandemic, 
over the last 10 years, uh, roughly, th there is an increasing sense that we should uh, really have a more structured, institutionalized debt restructuring mechanism than we do have. And, you know, to some extent, I think this is right. So there are certainly uh, features that can be improved and, and systematized, and hopefully we'll talk about some of this. But what, what don't, people often don't realize is that there is, to some extent, such a an institutional an institutionalized mechanism already. And it is um, essentially, essentially centered on two institutions, uh, the IMF and the, and the Paris Club. Uh, so the way it works is that if um, a country gets into trouble, um, can't repay its debt, loses market access, it will typically come to the IMF. And, and the reason is that the IMF is sort of the designated official uh, lender for that sort of thing. The lender that can take more risk than other lenders that is being, if you like, officially sponsored since it was created in the in 1940s to, to have that sort of role and ask for a loan. So at that point, the country may or may not want a debt restructuring, but what the IMF will do at that point is find out whether conditional on some policy adjustments, so growth-oriented reforms, some fiscal adjustment, um, the end conditional on new financing at more or less normal interest rates, so not super high crisis rates, the, the crisis uh, can be overcome um, by economic recovery and will eventually lead uh, the country to be able to repay its, its debt over the medium term. And so when that's not the case, we call debt unsustainable, right? So, so that's an important point is that unsustainable debt doesn't mean that debt will blow up under current policies and current financial conditions. Right? So if, if that were the case, um, very many countries would have unsustainable debts right now. We have advanced countries that can borrow at very low interest rates whose debt is on an unsustainable trajectory. But it's not really unsustainable because these countries can make uh, policy reforms that would allow them to repay and, and markets know that. Jeremy, can I just ask for a little clarification? Um, because we our level of understanding, or at least my level of understanding is, is truly basic. So um, you said that the IMF is often the, the, the first, often or always the first institution that countries will come to when they're in a crisis, such as the one we're in now. And um, their IMF lends money now uh, at low interest rates better than what they're getting in the market or they're not getting anything in the market uh, right now. But it, it, am I correct that the IMF does not have unlimited funds, that it, it's, uh, it has a very small amount of funds and that when it lends to you, even though as you articulated it, it um, lends to you when you are in a risky state, it, it lends to you under um, con severe conditions, such as you have to pay them back uh, first. 
And um, if you don't pay them back first, they, 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 they cut you off completely. Uh, so in a sense, their, their lending is kind of riskless and uh, limited. Is, is my understanding correct? And that, that you, can't just, you can't just expect the IMF to solve every one of the world's problems and that in a situation such as COVID where lots and lots of countries are in trouble, this little institution in Washington, D.C. with limited funds, I mean, really can't so, be expected to do everything. So, so, so there is a um, certainly a scenario out there where the IMF would not have enough funds to lend to countries that need it in a uh, prolonged, generalized, if you like, systemic crisis resulting from COVID or for other reasons. We are nowhere near that scenario, right? So we have uh, done lots of very small emergency loans that were conditionality free, uh, which is one of the reasons why they were so popular, to about 70 uh, countries or so, could be more. We have made commitments to supply credit lines to countries viewed as having strong fundamentals like Mexico, for example, uh, and those are also conditionality free. But in the realm that you just described, which is conditional IMF lending, it has so far been virtually business as usual. There has not been a very high demand for IMF loans. And uh, as a result of that, we still have plenty of financial capacity to help. But so I, case, I don't know if this is... Um... Okay, so I'm going to ask a question that maybe you will say you're not allowed to answer, but I, I just want to know um, about your blood pressure. How yeah. stressed are you that the fact that, that like, the, the, I don't know, I don't know the proper metaphor, the shit's going to hit the fan, or that doesn't okay. even seem you know, appropriate. I wanted to get to that after explaining the existing architecture. <laughs> so okay, let's, okay. let's get architecture up. and then we'll so talk about the, whether the, the world the is basic point, Okay, the basic point I want to make is that in, in a situation where countries run into a debt crisis, they are cut off, they come to the fund and the fund does a sort of triage exercise. So it decides whether debt is unsustainable or not. If the IMF decides debt is unsustainable, then the IMF cannot lend to that country unless it approaches its creditors and seeks a debt restructuring. And, and, and so that is a really important uh, function uh, for at least two reasons. One is many countries, as you have pointed out many times in the past, need to uh, tend to procrastinate in dealing with their debt issues. And even though you know, we cannot stop them from procrastinating to come to the fund, once they have come to the fund, we can stop it in the sense that we can not offer them support unless they address their deep problem, right? So that's an important function. And second important function is that the, the IMF in its debt sustainability analysis typically indicates the minimum debt relief that the country will require in order to be able to borrow from us. And that debt relief in a sense sets a floor um, in the negotiations with the creditors then that ensue. And that's a really important function because, you know, if we did not have a neutral organization like the IMF saying, look, we really think that for that country to become solvent again, such and such debt relief is required, then there would be endless haggling. And of course, you know, countries and uh, creditors do not have the same information. 
creditors will assume that countries understate their capacity to pay and so forth. So, so these are sort of two really uh, important functions. A, a third important function that's also institutionalized is that when we then lend to the country, conditional on a debt restructuring, um, it comes with economic conditions. And these economic conditions are not just important for us, but they also reassure the creditors that the country is at least in the first few years, which are the years under an INF program, moving in a direction where it's going to, it looks like it will be restored to economic health and as a result, be able to pay whatever it committed in that debt restructuring. So that sort of commitment role is, is also an important one. The fourth important point is that, you know, of course, during that period, typically the country is still um, uh, cut off from, from credit markets. And so the IMF will provide financing in that uh, situation. And then finally, the, the conditions for us to go and lend to countries that are engaging with their creditors require us to do so only if we think that there is a, actually a, a reasonably high chance that they will conclude uh, an agreement. And, and so that uh, helps uh, the country um, actually get there and, and helps in a sense with creditor coordination, right? So we would not support, for example, a restructuring plan uh, that is very skewed in the sense that it puts all the burden on some creditors and not others, because we know that that, that falls apart. So, you know, in a very modest way, we can also contribute to, to one is, what is one of the most intractable problems in, in sovereign debt restructuring, which is coordination uh, across creditors. And so, and so Jeremy, as, yeah. as we, um, I suspect part of what we're going to want to talk about as the the episode goes on is some of the proposals for dealing with those kinds of coordination problems. But I'm wondering if now might be a good point to get you to prognosticate a little bit on the the shit hitting the fan question yes. that Me Too was, was prompting. I mean, my sense is that we've been living in a time of really easy credit conditions. And so one question is how long those easy credit conditions are going to last. And then, of course, there's uncertainty about the economic fallout of the pandemic. So what is your sense of the, the kind of big picture going forward in the next couple of years? Right. So, so basically, the, the sense of the big picture is there will be, I hesitate to say, lots more crises, but there will be you know, a significant amount of, of new crises for the reasons that you, you, have, uh, you have stated. But it is unclear whether those crises require deep debt restructurings as part of their resolution. So, so look, there, there are basically two, two ways of thinking about this, and they lead you into you know, different directions, even though you know, one, one can ultimately reconcile them. So one is think about sort of long-term debt sustainability. So you know, debt sustainability depends on whether countries can achieve the primary balances. So the, the difference between um, uh, revenues and non-interest non spending that allows them to repay their debts. Um, now think about how the pandemic has affected those required primary balances. So there's an easy rule of thumb that basically says that the debt stabilizing primary balance equals the difference minus a country's growth rate and the interest rates multiplied with its debt. So if the debt goes up by say 
20 points of GDP, right? Which is kind of in the ballpark of what is expected for advanced economies. And the difference between the real growth rate and the real interest rate is one percentage point. So, you know, we say it is, it is, uh, um, well, I'm sorry, the, the difference between the interest and the growth rate. So interest rates are slightly higher than the real growth rate by one percentage point. Then the additional fiscal effort that countries have to do indefinitely, you know, the amount by which they need to raise these primary balances is 0.2% of GDP. Now, so this is kind of big in the sense that it has to be permanent, right? But it is not inachievable. So simply, if a country was had sustainable debt before this pandemic, and the difference between its real interest rates and its growth is in the same ballpark post-pandemic as pre-pandemic, the amount of fiscal adjustment that needs to be done to repay those extra 20 points in debt is not out of the ordinary. And you know this is consistent, of course, with the views that we see industrial countries having a vast range of debts to be GDP ratio, you know, with Japan extremely high, other countries extremely low, the US somewhere, uh, somewhere in the middle, and they all borrow at low rates and you know, markets consider them uh, sustainable. So the, the relationship between debt sustainability and just the sheer amount of debt that you have to repay is very loose because it is intermediated by these two important variables, your real growth rate and your borrowing rate. And so simply the amount of extra borrowing that is required during this pandemic is not gonna put many countries in the danger zone. So that is sort of fact number one. With a caveat, of course, that if the pandemic does affect things like that specific country's growth rate, not just the output levels, right? But the growth rate in the medium and long term, it could be a different story. But it's kind of hard to think that not just output, but medium long-term growth of a country would be negatively affected by the pandemic with you know, possibly some, uh, some exceptions. So if you look at this in this very long- So German- um, Pretty sanguine. German, wait, 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 yes, I, want, I, want, I want clarification because yes. um, you use many big words there and right. I'm, I'm very simple-minded. So I can't tell what precisely you're saying in terms of your blood pretty are you saying that it's quite possible everything will be fine? Yeah, uh, it's quite possible, but there is a, an important caveat, right? Which is part two. Part two is, is the fact that, you know, while the long run fiscal adjustment that countries will have to do to make sure that they, they are sustainable is, is quite small. In the meantime, countries have very large deficits, right? They're borrowing a lot. And they will need to come back to fiscal positions, primary balances that are, if anything, a little bit tighter than they were pre-pandemic, right? To, in order to be able to repay those extra dollars that they have, they have uh, uh, borrowed. And so it may take countries a long time to actually come back to those pre-pandemic and a bit higher uh, primary balances without killing their economies. So it may take them several years. So what the real danger of the pandemic is not so much this long run debt sustainability concept. It's 
about the amount of financing that you need to get from some somewhere to allow you to you know, recover from the pandemic and then do fiscal adjustment in a slow, orderly way, right? That's where the real danger is. And the reason, like you both, I think, suggested in your earlier remarks, why we have not seen a problem so far is because this financing has been for most countries, not for all, fairly readily available on account of very low interest rates, right? That need then leads investors to search for yield and basically means that countries that can, you know, that, that need to borrow it can do so at, at more or less uh, reasonable rates. So there are two reasons to not be so sanguine. And now we come to the to what you want me to say, which is that first, um, you know, if there are losses of confidence, for example, as a result of a large crisis in an emerging market, uh, and we see sort of a phenomenon which we have not really seen in this crisis, except very briefly in, in March, where suddenly emerging markets or developing countries as a whole lose access to finance, except at much higher rates, because of a sense that they're not safe. For example, because the pandemic is going to take longer in those countries to resolve because they're not going to get vaccines that early. Then uh, we might have a generalized set of debt crises in, in such countries. Another possible trigger is that world interest rates go up, right? So again, the, the reason why we have been in this really comfortable position is because of the Fed and the ECB and some of the other industrial countries, central banks that have for their own purposes, for their own domestic purposes, really lowered interest rates to basically zero. And this has trickled down to the emerging market and developing world. But there is a scenario out there where advanced countries, because, for example, they get their vaccines earlier than other countries, get to recover earlier. And if they really recover earlier, then say in 2022, 2023, 2024, their economies are growing fast, maybe their monetary policies are going to tighten. And if then the emerging markets and developing countries are still suffering from you know, a near pandemic a, a crisis and needs lots of borrowing, they might only get it at much higher rates and that would create a problem. So in that sense, you know, my, my, I'm not, I don't have sleepless nights because of this, but we're gonna face a pretty long period. We're not gonna really know how this is going to last until say 22 uh, or something like that. And until we know how the recoveries uh, are gonna proceed in, in both sides of the world. Well, and if things had gone a little bit differently in Congress the other day, we could be talking about what um, the readoption of the gold standard would um, would do for this discussion. But thankfully, um, thankfully, we don't need to go uh, go in that direction. Maybe this is a good time to take a short break, and then, Jeremy, when we come back, uh, there have been a couple of developments recently. Um, that the IMF has played a key role in. One was the IMF paper you referenced earlier and that Mitu and I poo-pooed a little bit in an earlier episode. And the other is uh, this so-called common framework that the G20 uh, in, in coordination with the IMF have developed. And when we come back, maybe you can say a, a little bit about uh, the common framework to, to orient us. And then um, what I wanna talk about is the problem of coordinating across creditors. Um, so maybe after the break, we can talk about that. 
So, Jeremy, recently the G20, after consultation, I think, with, with the IMF and others, released this so-called common framework. And, and I guess, like I, I was saying at the right before break, I wanted to ask you to give us a, a really quick overview of that. But the the fundamental question I have is um, is fairly simple. So one of the concerns that have been raised in connection with the DSSI um, and in other contexts is that official debt relief is not accompanied by comparable debt relief um, granted by private creditors and by a range of um, non-Paris club and sort of uh, quasi-official creditors as well. So, so official uh, relief is is at least potentially going to line the pockets of other creditors, rather than for um, uh, pandemic-related relief. And there was a line in this so-called common framework that suggested uh, an intent to change that scenario. And, and the line tells us that debt countries that are getting official bilateral relief have to seek comparable treatment from other creditors. And the question I had really is, what the hell does that mean? You know, I can imagine a world where that means the debtor country has to ask politely, and then when it's told no, it's fulfilled all of its obligations. Um, but maybe there's a, a world where this change in policy is actually going to lead to real um, coordinated debt relief. And, I, and I'm trying to figure out which of those two worlds this common framework is, is placing us in. Okay, so Mark is um, so incredibly polite always let, let me ask a different version me too doesn't like my question <laughs> yeah like that that was just like so my question jeremy <laughs> having known you for multiple decades now and known mark for multiple decades now did you read this thing that seems to have taken them many months to do and then try to hit, drive your head through the wall in terms of the just utter vacuousness of this great big solution that these people produce? I mean, what the hell are, like, what is there that is new in this other than saying the IMF should do uh, debt sustainability analysis? We know they should do that and that there should be comparable treatment. Hello. And then the Saudi finance minister, I mean, clearly I'm not going to Saudi Arabia anytime now. Saudi finance ministers announcing that this is some great big invention, development, addition to the international financial architecture. This is beyond me. It makes that IMF report look like literature. All right. That was what Mark actually meant to say. Okay. So I'm completely with the Saudi finance minister uh, on this. Uh, so the, the common framework is, is the single biggest positive step in financial architecture innovation I would say since the enhanced CACs, uh, roughly. Uh, and we know the enhanced CACs don't work perfectly. And we're not, gonna sh we're not sure the common framework will work perfectly. In fact, it probably won't. But it's nonetheless a hugely uh, significant step. Uh, and it is so for, for two reasons. Uh, the, the first one is, and the, and the main one, that it 
tries to extend Paris Club principles for official sec, uh, creditor coordination beyond the Paris Club, right? That is with one sentence what the common framework does. So for your students, even though I presume they are the ones who really know this stuff already, you know, we have two sets of coordination problems in, in sovereign debt, official creditors and private creditors. The official creditor coordination problem has for many decades been solved by uh, a framework, an informal institution, the Paris Club, that negotiates on behalf of all its members, and these are about roughly, I think, 22 countries, they are most of the uh, rich countries, with creditor countries. And, and so they negotiate as one group, uh, and so there is no issue that one country doesn't want to give debt relief because another country might not get debt relief and, and that sort of thing. So they commit ex ante to uh, negotiate and then accept similar terms on, uh, on all. Now, this approach fell apart because many of the biggest official creditors these days, which include the big emerging markets, so there's China, there's Saudi Arabia, there are other big emerging market uh, countries that increasingly are, are beginning to lend, uh, they are not members of the Paris Club. Uh, and so coordination between the Paris Club and those new big time creditors has been very difficult. And the common framework is an attempt to solve that problem by having all these countries, whether Paris Club or non-Paris Club, negotiate a common memorandum of understanding with the debtor country, which outlines the essential parameters of debt relief. So the NPV debt reduction, the maturity extension, the interest rates that are applied to compute these NPV uh, debt reductions, right? So they commit to essentially common terms and then they go out and each on their own, and in the case of the Paris Club, the Paris Club is a group, then they formalize these uh, debt restructuring agreements. So, so it is a, a huge step if it works, right? So there might be, of course, setbacks in the sense that, you know, once um, uh, these creditor countries find that they have to do all these things, they might run into domestic difficulties or political difficulties or something like that. But, but it is, in, in principle, uh, a, a, a really big step in the, in the right direction. The second big problem that the Common Framework is supposed to address, which has already been addressed by the Paris Club, is uh, what you refer to as comparability of treatment. So the non-participation of uh, of private creditors. So the so-called debt service uh, suspension initiative, the DSSI, uh, which was this, um, or still is, uh, an agreement among the G20 to suspend the debt service that's owed to them by a group of you know, up to 73 uh, poor countries uh, between last year, May, and, and the summer of next year, uh, did not have a requirement that the debtor countries benefiting from these service suspensions ask their private creditors to do the same. And it, it didn't have this requirement for a very good, good reason, which is that there was relatively little money on the table because the DSSI is not about deep debt relief, it's only about postponing debt payments. And so if you had forced the debtor countries to in effect renegotiate their debts with the private sector too, many of them would not have asked for this uh, debt relief because they would have been worried about spoiling their reputations and their standing in private uh, credit markets. 
Now, the common framework is there for a different purpose. It's not about suspending debt relief. It's about deep debt relief for countries that really, really need it, right? So it will go to a smaller group of countries. In principle, all the DSSI countries, so these 73 countries are eligible, but you only get it if you need deep debt relief because your debt is unsustainable. And who decides that? It's supposed to be mainly the IMF deciding whether their debt is unsustainable. But then that debt relief, this deep debt relief from the official sector is conditional on the debtor country asking for the same debt relief from all its private creditors. But, but what does that That's mean to ask? It means that unless you renegotiate your debts on similar terms, the debt relief that is granted to you from the official creditors is null and void. So the debt service that was originally due can be reinstated. So it's, it's a very old principle, right? The Paris Club has been using this uh, for, for many years. It is imperfect. There is obviously an issue of are you going to enforce it if countries, you know, bail in their private sector creditors somewhat, but not maybe all the way, right? So there's an enforcement issue, but by and large, it has certainly been effective in enforcing meaningful private sector debt relief. So, so German, so you are saying that what this document that you like clearly actually means to say is that once there's official sector relief, the private sector won't just be asked to provide comparable relief, they have to provide comparable relief. I mean, they Mark, I'm a lawyer, so th this is a, a, a rather no, no, no. significant difference between our reading of that document and your articulation of it. We, and we like your articulation of it, but then you sort of backed it's off. Not and, a requirement. Look, the private sector is not a party to this contract, right? The MOU is well, a very light contract. contract. Nobody's yeah. saying it's a contract. It no, could no. be, I think, me too, when me too, I would put me too's point a bit differently, which is it, the document does not explicitly say that relief under the common framework will be conditioned on receiving comparable relief from private creditors. It just says you have to ask for it. And so I'm, I think that's the, the source of confusion. The document refers to a very well-known, tried and tested, you know, probably imperfect mechanism by the Paris Club. It means exactly what comparability of treatment means in the Paris Club. So to, you know, you, you cannot fold the common framework for on these grounds, for these principles. It is literally an attempt to apply Paris Club principles to the broader G20. To the extent that you want to criticize it for these, you are engaging with the effectiveness of the Paris Club. Right. It's, an, it's an attempt to just transpose what the Paris Club has been doing to the G20, and that's great. The problem with the common framework is not where you suspect it to be, namely that comparability of treatment is meaningless. It's not meaningless. The problem of the common framework is that it is an aspirational at this point, right? It lays out a procedure, and no one knows how well this procedure is going to work in practice. And so can, we're can... all going to try and make it work. Right? But there is probably a good reasons, for example, why some of the non-Paris Club members did not join the Paris Club. These reasons are still there. Will so Jeremy, it, does, it seems like one of these points of difficulty in 
translating the, the common framework from an aspirational document to something that works in practice is that the, the, the G20 countries that have reached this agreement, um, so we're talking about official bilateral debt there, but that definition has seemed to become increasingly slippery in, in recent years where and we saw this um, uh, arguably in uh, Ukraine, we see it with some state-owned entities that engage in financing. So can you talk a bit about these sort of quasi-official but not official bilateral creditors and the sort of potential role they might play in, in this so, process? So the ambiguity about what is official debt and what is not is important in settings in which there's no comparability of treatment. It was important, continues to be important in the DSSI setting because there is no comparability of treatment. So if a creditor country claims such and such institution is not official, it's commercial, then it simply is not covered by the debt service suspension initiative unless it wants to voluntarily take part. And so the specific case that you're referring to um, which is China Development Bank, is a case where China has argued they are commercial lender, were not covered un under the DSSI. This said, they have been actually participating in DSSI as a commercial lender and being given some debt relief, perhaps not to the full amount they would have been given when if they had been considered a bilateral official. So th this is indeed an issue in that specific context. The beauty of comparability is that in principle, subject to this fundamental caveat of to what extent can you really enforce comparability of treatment, it makes all this distinction moot because it doesn't matter whether you are official, commercial, whatever. If you are not among the parties that sign on the dotted line, which are the official creditors and the data country, then it is the data country's responsibility to treat you in the same way as the parties that did sign, the creditors that did sign on the dotted line, right? So comparability of treatment implies that any creditor to that data country that is not a party of the MOU in principle should the same treatment from the debtor. So the debtor is under an obligation to renegotiate its debt with all these other entities and to do it on comparable terms. And in that sense, it's much less important how the perimeter between bilateral, uh, official, and commercial debt is, is drawn, right? That's one of the, the big beauties. So, so, thank, thank so this, is not the, this is not the problem. I, I mean, I'm going to have to tell you what the problem is because you guys are constantly barking up the wrong tree, right? So the, the, the problem is that the, some of the difficulties that the, uh, you know, we've had in official debt restructuring over the last few years do not have to do primarily with sort of unwillingness of non-Paris Club creditors to coordinate or do the right thing, but they have to do with domestic constraints of those non-Paris Club creditors. So some of these non-Paris Club creditors have powerful lending agencies that cannot be necessarily committed to do what, for example, their government would want to do. They renegotiate debts themselves because they have their own interests. So it's not entirely clear whether by creating a coordination mechanism that binds countries, you are also gonna bind all these entities who are playing largely independent roles, right? And so we will see, I mean, it is, 
a powerful signal that you know, if creditor countries want to deliver on their commitments under the common framework, they will have to do something about this. We will see how far we get in that, in that respect. So, uh, Jeremy, ba- back to the barking up the wrong tree uh, phenomenon yeah. that you uh, correctly uh, accuse us of, given that I have learned over time that you're almost always more reasonable and more accurate in predicting the future. But, but indulge us, poor lawyers, uh, a few more questions uh, up the wrong tree again. Uh, sure. The comparability thing is not the only thing that stuck out. I also was concerned that the common framework, this this beautiful uh, piece of art that you you like so much, also seemed to envision case by case, country by country uh, negotiations to deal with the COVID funding problems. Uh, this, I think the DSSI experience has shown us is just a recipe to allow the private sector to escape any uh, contribution. And also seems to have bizarre language, if I recollect correctly, suggesting that principal haircuts really are not envisioned except maybe in some truly extraordinary circumstances. Now, I'm eager for you to tell me that I have misread the document on uh, those two counts, but it befuddles me how one could be that confident that, for example, you would not need significant principal reductions at this stage. Okay, so on the first point, I, I, your point on case by case completely baffles me. So we're talking about deep debt relief here. Apart from the HIPAA initiative, which was in a sense case by case, because these you know countries were defined as part of the in, initiative based on whether the debts were deeply unsustainable or not, in addition to income levels, right? So this was not a blanket debt relief to say all low-income countries. But you know, with that, with that sort of thing apart, have you ever seen any deep debt restructuring that wasn't case by case? Uh, so let me let me explain uh, what I mean in the context of the DSSI about the case by case approach that really sank us uh, the last time around. It it really it translates in legal terms to renegotiating every contract. And we know how difficult that is. And if it is a function of each contract, then we're just gonna be negotiating this till the cows come home or whatever. So I'm not really sure about your point about have we ever seen this? I'm saying, look, we're in an existential crisis most likely and we're going to have, an, have to have an efficient solution that works for everybody quickly. And- uh, But that's the, that's the process. By contract that the IIF has been advocating for, uh, and that as I read the common framework, they seem to be giving into, yes, that's how we've always done it before. That does not, under any theory, mean that that's the right way to do it going forward. Okay. Just to make be very clear, 
case by case means that not every country that is eligible among the 73 countries will get debt, deep debt relief under the common framework. Case by case means that only countries with unsustainable debts will get it, number one. And number two, that the amount of debt relief is going to depend on country-specific circumstances. That's what it means. And the question of whether the mechanism is powerful enough to deliver debt relief to many countries at the same time has nothing to do with whether it's done case by case or not, right? You're never gonna find, and this was not true in HIPAA either, you're never gonna find a, a creditor group that says we will give every country that owes us money the same amount of debt relief. But the whether or not the, the, the framework is powerful enough is going to depend on whether procedurally it works the way it's, it, is, uh, it is outlined there. So there may be a case to also give fiscal support to countries that do not have unsustainable debts, right? So in, in some sense, those fall through the cracks here. That's not the intention. The intention is to deal with deep debt crisis. But when we talk about deep debt crisis resolution, what the common framework does is both standard and can, uh, can work pretty well in the sense that you can actually resolve in a debt crisis in a few months, provided that the steps work as outlined. So again, the, the weakness potentially, we don't know yet, of this idea is not the process that is envisaged, this simply follows the standard Paris Club approach. The, the question is whether it will work as outlined when we have a rather heterogeneous group of creditors, many of which are quite new to this business of debt restructuring. And so with this, I wanna get you to your second point is, which is why is there this language on that you know, normally you would want the debt, uh, the, the debt restructurings to be done through reschedulings. It is a uh, accommodation to these new creditors that often have legal frameworks that make it very difficult. So essentially require a much higher level of political and legal authorization, like going to parliament, for example, to do debt write-offs, outright nominal reductions than to do rescheduling's, right? So it, it, in practice, it the application of the common framework is going to be much easier if one can avoid this. And as you know, as well as I, you can do very deep debt reductions through a combination of lower interest rates and much longer maturities. So in terms of net present value debt reduction, whether or not you do a nominal haircut is really not an issue except in rare circumstances. And in that sense, it's not a very big constraint. This said, you know, it is a constraint, um, but the common framework does allow uh, uh, outright debt reductions. It just makes the presumption that the initial attempt will be to do without it. So, so German, maybe if I can squeeze in one last question, we've, we've taken up a bunch of your time, but I wanted to shift gears a little bit from what I understood Mitu's question to be, which was, um, about the potential need for significant haircuts um, to the problem that in principle, the DSSI was 
in my understanding, designed to address, and that uh, still seems uh, to be a problem that hasn't been addressed to me, which is um, the whatever we think about the need for deep debt restructurings, lots of countries need immediate um, immediate room to devote resources to fighting the pandemic, the, the healthcare crisis, the economic fallout. And the DSSI was, as far as I can tell, something of a failure in that regard because countries were quite slow um, and, and um, not just slow to, to uh, ask for relief, but we haven't seen anywhere near all of the eligible countries ask for it. So what ideas are out there for um, giving immediate term uh, debt relief to a much wider range of countries? That seems to me a problem that still hasn't been addressed. Uh, right. So, so basically, there are two dimensions in this you know, immediate support. One is what the DSSI was trying to do, which is liquidity, right? So basically official lending. The DSSI was a form of official lending. It was equivalent to refinancing existing claims uh, at the prevailing uh, rates. The other one is you know, fiscal transfers, true fiscal support, right? Grants, debt relief, things that you do not have to pay back. So in the first compartment, the fact is that the potential for uh, developing countries to access official lending is not nearly exhausted. What, what has been exhausted is official lending without conditionality. Right? So the DSSI did not have conditionality except for some minimal uh, reporting and transparency requirements, uh, nor did the IMF emergency lending. Standard lending has conditionality and many countries are reluctant to ask for standard IMF programs for the right reasons and for the wrong reasons. So you know they may, may fear uh, the fiscal adjustment that comes with it. I mean, in this respect, I can say that the IMF is extremely conscious that there should not be fiscal adjustment in the middle of the pandemic. But very often they don't ask for it for the, for the wrong reasons, which is that the type of conditions that the IMF might ask a country to do are conditions that might hurt the ruling elites of, of the countries. And the ruling elites are often the ones that have to ask, that are in charge, right? So. It, this, to, to, to a, a significant extent, the problem is not the problem of lack of money, but it's a problem of the beneficiary countries not wanting to avail themselves of the existing re resources because they come with, with strings attached. Then we go to the second uh, point, which is genuine grants, fiscal transfers. So we have many countries that have sustainable debts, but they have very limited fiscal space, right? They, they are relatively close to their debt ceilings, if you wish. For those countries, it would be much better to get additional support, not through loans, but, but through grants. And you know, in a setting where all countries are struggling with this pandemic at the same time and all have very large deficits to finance, it's hard to find those grants. And so I do agree there is a real problem in that the set of countries that 
in a sense is eligible for deep debt relief is very small, precisely because the world doesn't look as terrible as Mito would would think, for example, we do not have 50 unsustainable debt cases out there. We have maybe 12, 15 unsustainable debt cases out there. And that is sort of the rough number that might benefit from something like the common framework and deep debt relief under uh, uh, that comes with it. But that leaves maybe you know, 50, 80 developing countries that are really struggling and, and they're not getting direct fiscal support, right? They're getting loans, they could get loans, but they're not getting uh, direct fiscal support. And, and so they are sort of left in a difficult position. And, and so in, in this respect, I think the, the one idea that might work that I was initially quite skeptical about, but thinking about it more, I think might work is if you have debt relief for countries with sustainable debt, so those that are not eligible for normal debt relief, that is conditional on these countries doing things that is good for the world at large and for the advanced countries that are funding that debt relief, like doing things for their climate, for example, or doing things for the biodiversity, that might be a way of getting uh, fiscal funds to those countries. So the idea of debt climate swaps, even though they have been very small in the past, debt nature swaps, they're complicated, and they are probably not a good instrument to deal with deep debt crises when the, when the real objective is just deep debt relief. And, and there may be more important spending objectives than, 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 than climate investments. I think that th these swap ideas, debt for climate, debt for nature, could be a good way of actually mobilizing north-south uh, transfers uh, in, in a way that, that is uh, politically acceptable um, and, and supported in the uh, uh, creditor countries as well as the debtor countries. And, and because it involves debt relief and the debt that is being forgiven has uncertain repayments, it might not be, or it would not be as expensive from the donor country point of view than simply uh, giving a, a straight transfer, a straight grant to, to, to that country. So I think that's an idea that merits some development. All right, I like that. That, that, that is a um, really nice uh, topic for Mark and me to uh, focus our next semester on since uh, we will be uh, analyzing uh, debt restructurings in the sovereign context all term as, uh, what was it that you said, 40 to 50 countries? <laughs> <laughs> I said 12 to 15. Chairman, I, I have one last question before we let you go. You have, uh, as always, had uh, such good humor in dealing with our uh, questions and especially my attempt to send you off in directions that you rightly don't go on. But um, on a more serious note, and please tell us if you, you can talk about this, uh, Mark and I have been wondering about what is going to happen now that there is a uh, new administration, I don't mean your political views, I just mean how does it affect on the ground uh, your operations or how you think about uh, helping the countries around the world when one moves from a Trump administration that I think is fair to say was highly nationalist and not very focused on the IMF or uh, emerging markets or IDA countries 
to uh, an administration that hopefully is much more internationalist. Uh, now we don't actually know that that's going to happen, but my sense has been that over the last four years, both uh, because the UK has been busy with uh, Brexit drama and the US has been busy with Trumpy drama, that the way in which international institutions like yours work has somewhat changed and other countries have had to come to the fore or, but, but I don't, you know, I don't actually know. I'm just, we're just speculating. Uh, you're quite right. Me too. This is probably the one question I cannot answer, <laughs> but let, let me just say that we, we ha have, I think um, it's a good moment for multilateralism. Um, we have the, uh, a very, uh, a, multilateralist minded um, constructive G7 presidency coming up, which is led by the UK. Uh, the UK is, among other things, very interested in climate issues and in debt issues. And those are all areas where you uh, cannot do uh, without uh, multilateralism. And, and there are strong, strong proponents of that. And then at the G20 level, we have the Italian presidency. And they are very much in sync. Uh, and at the fund, we really look forward to collaborating with, with both uh, in, in both fora. And, and I should say that, you know, the G20 and, and also the G7, they, they have done good work uh, over the last year in particular. And like I said, the common framework, even though you think uh, it's uh, sort of the glasses, maybe one third empty, I, I certainly think it's more than half full, uh, is, is one example of that. Well, thank you so much. You, you have been incredibly kind as you always are. And this will be a very fun episode for us to talk to our students.